to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining from the same city, but still a very safe social distance, is Wim Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. I'm doing great. It's great to be here. That's not what sincerity sounds like, but moving on. We're also joined by the director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. I'm both socially distant and emotionally distant. I'm waiting for the FDA to put out emotional distancing guidelines because I feel <laughs> that I'm going to have a leg up. Also joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. I like that Glenn came in with both the volume and the the uh, the, the the tone of voice of like a 1920s radio broadcaster. It's yeah, like when it's like when uh, in, like when Secretariat wins the uh, Triple Crown. He's yeah. moving like a tremendous machine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that that's the that's the vibe I'm going for. I think that's that's the next uh, hip thing. Nailed it. Yeah, that's that's what Ooh. Glenn thinks sincere people sound like. <laughs> He's like, "What is I'm being totally excited to be somewhere right now." <laughs> yeah. Well, we have an excellent show. We have some great questions. We've got some fun to be had, but first I think in a very rare moment, we don't normally try to catch the zeitgeist, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, which is a German kind of ghost. We don't try to catch it because it's scarier than a regular ghost. (laughs) Right. I'm I'm against that. It is. There is a cultural moment. We we record on July the 5th, meaning the the world still has Hamilton fever. And I'm wondering if there's some way we can capitalize. Oh, I'm sure there must be. For sure. Did, Did we all see the Hamilton? Did we all enjoy the Hamilton? I, totally, I, dude. I know that Lee's a big fan. Yeah, it was. I was surprised by the number of shotguns and tank tops, but it was really cool. Dude, my favorite part by far was the liquid metal guy who could yeah. pass through bars and stuff, like change shapes. I mean, like that was. I didn't expect to see that in a musical. I'm not gonna lie, but that was awesome. I know when they when they when they shotgunned him in the face on the interstate and he fell on the interstate. I thought it was over, but then he turned one arm into a claw and got back on the car whilst rapping. That was really <laughs> impressive. Well, That's. I I you know to me I think it was a very bold choice to have. Uh, a, a robot from the future that has an Austrian accent, yeah, and arrives from the future naked. Yeah, you know you don't often see that in a musical. Yeah, how did they get lightning on the stage of a Broadway theater anyway? Just, you know, probably question. lighting effects or something. Now, fellas, I I did not watch the Hamilton, and I but I, I know it's not necessarily um, how to put this delicately because. We've said a lot of things that could make people angry on this show, but I'm not sure anything could fire up white Christians more than making fun of Hamilton. So let me choose my words very carefully. I don't think historical accuracy was priority one in the Hamilton production, but what the hell are you guys talking about? <laughs> well, look, it's, it's very simple. Okay. So there's a dude who's, he's going to make things better in the future. Right. Right. And the, the killer track so far. Right. The killer cyborgs from the future don't want them to make things better in the future. Now you've so, lost me. Right. They they got to go back in time. All right. Time travel. And his, his mom is portrayed by Linda Hamilton. That's, That's where it. the name comes from, bro. That's it's, Hamilton. It, excuse yeah. me, Dame Linda Hamilton. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good clarification. You guys may have watched a different movie than most people. Was this on Disney Minus? This one you guys watched? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, you know, we were like, you know, everybody's talking about Hamilton. We just assumed, obviously, that's Linda Hamilton. Yeah, she's yeah. great, dude. So you just watched you know, Linda Hamilton's best movie. That's what Hamilton the movie is. That's what else could it be? There wasn't a lot of singing, but you know what? I thought, you know, maybe that was just a creative decision. Yeah, I was disappointed because I thought it was going to be a real kind of behind the scenes thing of Linda Hamilton being married to James Cameron. <laughs> and they sing their breakup letters in a weird way. <laughs> well, you know, the, the key thing, though, where you started us, Matt, is you started us with what's our cash grab here? Yep. So right. whether we watched the right Hamilton or not, yeah. and I'm pretty sure we did, because this one yeah. had Arnold and explosions. I don't know how yeah. you can go along with either of those things. Totally. But e- 
Either way, there's there's a cash grab to be had here. So tell me more. How do we get some of that sweet sweet money? Well, we could we could get we could get investors on my plan of producing a musical about uh, Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> and the fun thing about that is you don't have to really write any of the music because it's just engine noise for three hours. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. However, I think we could we could go with the most popular Hamilton. I'm not judging it on uh, artistic merit because heaven knows Linda Hamilton exclamation an American musical is that's a whole thing. But the, the Hamilton with the dancing and the rapping and the history, I use the term history loosely. The people named after people who lived a long time ago and all that um, does seem to have struck a chord. Okay. So can we think of maybe a more, maybe as we tend to do on the show and maybe a niche or Christian version of a musical that is in the most roughly way based on a person that people may not know a lot about, but they like the hip hops. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm talking about just opening gambit, Charles Wesley, the musical. (laughs) Oh yeah. A lot of music there. The ironic, I must say, the ironic yeah. part is all original music. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> there's zero Wesley hymns in Charles Wesley, yeah. the musical. Yeah, the the oh the deep deep love of Jesus set to a like just banging trap background. That's that really took him by surprise. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 my opening bid. Let's build from there. I think that's very very strong. I I have a pitch for. Um, you could do this with a Knox or a Calvin, which are both, uh, particularly Knox is a great one to just have an exclamation point after and a very musical, yeah, the title like of Knox. Um, right. but it's just an hour and 45 minute monotone of reading a, uh, <laughs> kind of a tract of theology with absolutely no music to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think, I think, you know, you have with one of the things about the Hamilton musical is of course it has something like twice the number of words of any other musical ever written. And okay. so you take, you know, the, 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 the person who has written more words in the English language than any other, uh, alive or dead is Charles Spurgeon. So you just take all of the words of Charles Spurgeon and then just set them to a beat, say them as fast as possible and see if you can get through the collected works before people have to get up and leave the theater because they either have dehydrated or they must eat. Now, I have oh, a question wait, wait. pursuant to that. You guys remember the Micro Machines guy from the 80s who talked really fast? Holy cow, yes! <laughs> yes! What's he doing now? <laughs> Can we book well, him? Look, fellas, we're ignoring the obvious uh, good idea here, which is charge him by the word. Oh, I like it. Wow. I like See it. See what I'm yes. saying? It's like, it's like uh, uh, you know a tenth of a penny per word. People are like, that's a bargain. I'll sign up for that. <laughs> And then you just boom Spurgeon collected yeah, works. Right. You just, you just you just go to town and say, Hey, I'm sorry, you owe us ten thousand dollars, man. You signed up for it. I'm about to say a series of words that I don't think anyone's ever said, and it's either gonna be horrifying or it's gonna unlock a whole new spiritual and artistic direction. And that series of words is fireproof, a hip hop musical. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Here's the thing. Can, you could put in the effort to make it good, and that's certainly something. Or or you could pay Kurt Cameron whatever it costs yeah, to get him up much. there, and he has to try to rap for two hours. I think that's mandatory. Because I don't think he will get the uh, entirely ironic level on which we would all be enjoying that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, man, I'm a hit. People were delighted. I I have to say that right now in my head, because I I have seen a lot of musical theater in my life, is I have – so like the the opening, the the inciting incident, if you will, in Fireproof is that there's no pizza – when there right. was supposed to be pizza, yeah. and and Kirk's character interprets that as a lack of respect within the marital Clearly. relationship. Sure, right? totally legit. Exactly. That's what that's what any sane person would think in that moment. But, <laughs> Obviously, 
But I have in my head kind of a, a B minus grade Andrew Lloyd Webber take on that moment of just, there's no pizza, you don't respect me. There's no pizza, you don't respect me. And then you bring in the chorus, but you sure. change the person. There's no pizza, she doesn't respect him. And kind of over and over, there's a little bit of dancing going. I think this could be a hit, fellas. That could we have the background dancers wearing like a giant foam pizza slice <laughs> and just... <laughs> Dancing around. No, it's like, a pizza. It's a pizza slice with a sweater on. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I think we're also ignoring what might be the most perfect idea on this, and we already have the rights for it, and we already have the talent in the right place. I'm talking about say that the musical. Oh what? yeah. I mean, that's a that's just a ready made hit right there. I'm not sure that's a hit or ready-made, but I like your enthusiasm. <laughs> well, I th- I think uh, the best part is, you know, we've already got the mic set up, so we could just do it, <laughs> you know, you just hit record on the video of it, and uh, you, you, we just sing our answers to the questions. Boom. You're done. <laughs> you need boundaries. Boundaries. <laughs> that's it. You got it. In, a, in a, v, a a real peek into Glenn's inner world, there he just described both staging and recording a, a live musical, <laughs> and apparently coming up with an hour and a half of improv <laughs> songs specifically to answer questions as like no big deal, which lets you into the inner world where if Glenn hasn't done something, his first thought is ah, I can't be that hard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he's pointing exactly camera, people right. start singing. Yeah, what's that's the big right. deal? Tell your in laws to suck it. You know, that's it. <laughs> Boom, done. Twenty three skidoo. I could do this all day. Or, or the classic Glenn Fitzgerald hit. Ask her out, you big chicken. <laughs> that's right. That's it. That's it. That's that is that's what the people need right now more than ever. Say that the musical makes perfect sense to me. That's that's a horrifying vision, but I do like to think <laughs> that there will be a world in which there are so many Hamilton knockoffs, eventually they get around to the level of Say That the Musical. Yeah, yeah. Presumably before that, they'll get to the, the level of uh, uh, Mr. Hamilton, my seventh grade uh, geography teacher, and friend of the show, Alan Hamilton, M.D., which, I mean, that's a musical about doctors. How has no one done that yet? Let's get in there. That's, that sounds mandatory to me. He, he's a fine man. He's, he's a good doctor. And it's, uh, you know, you, 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 you get some uh, doctor uh, lab coats and everybody's prancing around. Boom. Done. Yeah, that's the way musicals happen. <laughs> and right. since we said that out loud, um, we get 10%, Hamilton. So, you know. That's right. That's business. <laughs> And with that, we never declared an emergency, but we will declare emergency off. Fish pills, fish pills. <laughs> Taking my fish pills. Ooh, yeah, that's going to be a meeting. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Oh, I mean, this is, it writes itself, fellas. I don't even know what the big deal is. Absolutely. I do, for one bonus joke, want to go back to Fireproof the Musical, because obviously I think the real cash cow of that would be uh, Chick Fil A co-sponsoring it, yes, because oh, <laughs> nice. the entire third act is brought to you by Chick Fil A. Yes, <laughs> yes, singing about peanut oil and whatnot. Well, we we don't have musical funding money quite yet. We do apparently for Glenn's version of it, where you just point your phone camera at people and they come up with a musical off the top of their head. But if we there wanted to go. put a little more production value into than that, we we need a little seed money and. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying, we're, you know, we're, 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 you know, and, and we're, we're taking these ideas all around town. The problem is that the town we're taking them around in Chicago and no one really cares, but we're, we're taking them all around town. <laughs> oh, we're trying. But you can also sign up for Bridgebox right now. We just give you some great stuff in your inbox first every month and the money you go, you uh, pay goes to fund our Deegan's division folks who do some amazing part-time work for us. Uh, Visiting people in residential programs, helping with jobs and housing, all sorts of great stuff. Even during this pandemic time, our deacons are doing great work, and you are a big part of that if you have signed up for Bridgebox. If you want to get involved, you can go to missionusa.com slash Bridgebox. Another way you can get involved is you can join us every Tuesday at 7.30 
p.m. Chicago time. Look that up wherever your time in the world is, because I tried to do that and my brain started melting and I couldn't spell Stockholm. So I'm never doing that again. But you can look it up. It's Googleable. <laughs> 7.30 p.m. Chicago time. Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago for The Bridge Live. And if you can't catch it live, every single one of them is archived over at Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago. Apparently, uh, apparently people who uh, tune in, I learned this uh, last week, people who tune in from Indonesia are listening to it in the future. Wow. That's true. Yeah. So it's like it's already happened there, but it hasn't happened here. I don't think that's how time zone works, but I don't know enough about time zones to refute him. (laughs) In the future. Stupid train people <laughs> making me look like an idiot. We're going to move on to our first question. If you have a question for us, hang out all the way to the end or scroll down into your episode description and click on the links there. Our first question comes in anonymously and it says, There's a whole swath of the Bible I'd never really hear about. What are books like Habakkuk and Joel about? Should I dig into them? And a very cool question. Lee, where would we start off? I love this question. I, I'm 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 with you on that, Matt. I think that's really cool. It is. It's a weird thing, and when you start to dig into some of the stuff that's in the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets, you can have a feeling of like, what in the world are we talking about? What's happening? Um, there, a lot of a lot of the folks that God called to be prophets. And we should just kind of take this to the purely basic level. A prophet was a person to whom God spoke. He gave a message to them that they were then to go and in turn give to the people. Um, and sometimes those people were kind of obvious choices, like you know, uh, high priest or you know, uh, you know, even even kings had kind of prophetic moments and stuff like that, like King David did. But sometimes they were just like totally random, normal dudes. There's a guy who's just a shepherd, and he has no power. He has no connections. Dude named Amos, and he has a whole book in the Bible. And so sometimes these guys just, they were just people that, that God spoke through. Sometimes they were women. Sometimes they were men. Sometimes highly connected. Sometimes not. And, and sometimes it's very difficult to understand because they were speaking to like really, really specific kind of political and cultural moments. Um, and, and so I... Like when you say like, I'm kind of, you know, this, these books are kind of a mystery to me. That makes perfect sense because a a lot of that stuff is really, really difficult to understand. I do like the idea of just kind of digging into them and kind of mining them for what they could speak to you. Because even if you don't always understand the themes or kind of the context of what's going on, there are always a lot of really cool verses or really cool themes that rise to the surface. Like, for instance, I when you point out Habakkuk, I love Habakkuk. I think it's a really cool little book in the Bible. Um, it's about a really specific time in Israel's history when they were facing this um, this army of of people who were just coming in and just wreaking destruction, the Chaldeans, and everybody was freaking out. And basically, Habakkuk was a person who spent the first two chapters of that book straight up going off on God for his inaction and God answering him back. And, and them just kind of wailing on each other. And I think that is the coolest thing because I don't know about you, but in the church that I was raised in, we were taught that you, you just can't pray like that. You can't just go into God's face and just go off on him about something that you're afraid of or something that you don't understand. But God has made sure in the book of Habakkuk that a conversation like that between a normal dude and the God of the universe is enshrined in our holy book. That's a really, really cool thing. I'm afraid. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to go into God's face and say, why are you so inactive when we're all so afraid? And it's right there. So, so cool. There's also like a, just a really, really classic verse that's used in the New Testament to talk about justification by faith, which is that the righteous will live by faith. That's what the Lord says in, in Habakkuk chapter 2. But Joel's weird. It's a little bit different. There's not really any kind of reference to a specific kind of time or king or people don't even really know when it was written, but it is kind of cool and important because it talks about the fact that there's like a day of reckoning coming, that God is going to like end this world and people need to figure out where they are, if they're with him and receive his mercy and all that kind of stuff. It kind of, to me, it kind of reads like an Old Testament version of like 
uh, Thessalonians or some of the stuff in Revelation or something like that. Um, all that to say, these things can be hard to understand because sometimes they do speak specifically to, uh, you know, these real specific kind of political and cultural things. But there are themes that help us, that help us to understand that God likes the kind of prayer that's honest and raw and gut level, and that that the world's going to end one day, that this is not going to go on forever. We need to figure out where we are and where we stand. And that, so those kinds of themes can rise to the surface, even if you don't understand those super hyper-specific kind of political and cultural themes that they're written about. That's an excellent place to start off. And Jed, love you to pick us up there because there uh, can be a lot of stuff in the minor prophets, which is the term for all kind of all these books collectively. That is not may not be a full Sunday school thing. You may not have had that uh, mentioned to you a lot. So it can be great to have a guide that's outside of just here's the text itself. Boom. And do we have a good one of those? We definitely do. I um, want to recommend to you one of my favorite writers in the world, one of my favorite books in the world. So uh, there's a, a rabbi named Abraham Heschel, and probably, yeah. well, certainly one of his best-known books is just named The Prophets, um, and it is about the whole of, of, the, of the prophets, so both the minor prophets and the major prophets. And it's an amazing, amazing book. I, I really can't recommend it enough. If you want to, to have a better sense of what's going on in those books, not only theologically, but culturally, historically, it's, it's just an epic book. But one of the things that he talks a lot about that goes to your question is, what does it mean to be a prophet? And, and Lee is exactly right. It's someone where God has a message and God gives it to this person and this person goes and delivers it. But if we dig into that, one, the, the phrase that Heschel uses is he, he says, sympathy with the divine pathos. Mm. And what that means is that a prophet is someone who sympathizes with how God feels about what's going on. And I think that's really, really worth thinking about and thinking deeply about, that a prophet is someone who sympathizes, who has sympathy with how God feels. It's not something that we think about very often, but that's, that's definitely where Heschel lands. And, and here's why that matters, is when you read through the prophets, and it's true in the major prophets, it's true in the minor prophet, prophets, one of the key themes that comes up again and again and again is justice for the poor. Yep. The fact that that is not occurring, and the fact that God is pissed because of that. There is a lot in the prophets of God—threat um, is the wrong word, because it's a promise, but making it clear, wrath is coming. <laughs> and wrath is coming specifically because the people receiving this message have horribly abused the poor, and, and God is literally wrathful off of that, that, that God is offended by that, that God is angry about that. And I think it's worth taking a second and pausing and reflecting on that because there are some popular worship songs out there that talk about wanting God to, to break our hearts with the things that break His, which is a cool idea, and that's a cool desire. What's noteworthy is God's actually pretty clear about what breaks His heart, and one of the key things is people mistreating the poor. Um, that's one of the almost unmissable takeaways from both the major prophets and the minor prophets. So I think one thing that you um, can get out of, of reading the prophets is a sense of how God feels about things, of, of the emotional landscape of the Lord, which is a good thing just in general, but also a good reminder that God really, really cares about justice for the poor and really takes it personally when that justice is denied. Yeah, that's a, a really beautiful uh, summation of a lot of cool stuff that's going on there. And if you want to check out the the book Jed mentioned there, which we all very highly recommend, Heschel is spelled H-E-S-C-H-E-L. Um, it's very widely available, so please do check that out if you're interested. And Glenn, we've heard a lot, a lot of great stuff. Where would we close out this idea of the Minor Prophets? Well, I think uh, this is a great question. We're we're thankful for it. I think uh, part of the struggle that that I have with the Bible, and you might be the same, is sort of applying a completist kind of thinking to it. I, I am the, a, the completist's completist. I mean, I I'm that guy. 
but I can't apply that to Scripture, and it, 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 will, it will frustrate me if I do. Uh, if I get myself into a mindset of, okay, I've, I've got to try and learn everything in the Bible and remember everything in the Bible and understand it and know it and apply it and all of that, I'm going to get overloaded and, and just realize it's, it, that's not an entirely doable thing, that each time we look into Scripture, we see something new in it, and God reveals something new uh, to us each time, and that that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, so we're, if we say, I need to know all of it, and, uh, you know, maybe that's completist thinking, maybe that's, I don't want to be embarrassed if someone asks me about it, um, uh, and I, I don't want to feel like I'm not a good Christian because I don't know that stuff. Uh, there's plenty—I'm not a Bible scholar. There's plenty in the Bible that I have known and utterly forgotten and couldn't remember if you paid me a million dollars. I have to go and look stuff up all the time, and, and, and there's lots of times where I remember it right, but I don't even trust it enough, so I go and look it up just to make sure I've got it right, that kind of thing. So we have to grab some humility about that, I think, and, and be comfortable with it and celebrate the fact that, that there's always that discovery that's going on. Um, the, the second thing is, particularly with the Old Testament, I want to uh, try and shape your thinking on that, because... Um, we're supposed to read uh, the Old Testament as a, a literal thing, that it, it, it literally, these things took place. This is a historical uh, account of events that took place. That is good, that is right, that is theologically sound, it is proper, it's what you're supposed to do. So lock that in, we're not going to change that. But it's also important to take those historical events and move them into a, a, a sort of a parable-type space. So, for example, if you have David and Bathsheba, there, there's a literal story of what happened there, and, and it's historical and so on and so forth, but it can be read, certainly, by us today as a parable— of mm. if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're on the roof and you're looking around and somebody isn't dressed and you know mm. and, and things and that so we can apply that to our daily lives by seeing the parable of that 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 if I do the same things that David did I'm going to have the same downfall that he had That's if good. I have a downfall I need to restore myself in the way that he struggled to restore himself and so forth so I think uh, being able to understand the Old Testament in that way is actually much more key than knowing all the little fiddly facts uh, uh, that's going on there. As these fellows were talking about, you know, Habakkuk is, you know, you, you, you got the Israelites, you got the Chaldeans. I don't know who the Chaldeans are. I don't know even where, uh, I mean, what, what part of town is this in? I don't, I don't know these places. Uh, and you can go and understand all of that, but as Jed is pointing out, uh, this is about someone preaching a brutally honest prayer. You know, Habakkuk just saying, "This is this is my. I, I am being really raw with the Lord here. I'm expressing, you know, kind of a just a, a doubt and sort of a where are you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and as Jed is pointing out, that's in a time of suffering due to economic injustice." We could relate to that today. There's there are yep. direct parallels today, and it's it's not important to simply know the facts of the book of Habakkuk. It's important to to see those parallels to today, so that we can apply those things. You know, Joel is a similar similar story. You know, it's it's sort of uh, talking about restoring a land that's been devastated uh, and 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 sort of ravaged, and it reminds me of. Um, a quote from Kierkegaard, which I will paraphrase, uh, but basically he he says that nope, um, original Danish or nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> believe me, I yeah. Uh, but he 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 says um, God creates something from nothing, and that when God wants to do something, when He wants to accomplish something, He turns it into nothing. That He. Uh, has this way of taking things down to zero 
and building things and, and in some cases rebuilding those things from scratch. And uh, so we we can get that from the book of Joel and understand what, what's being said there and understand that when we face disastrous circumstances, that doesn't mean that all hope is lost. So I think if we can take those things as parables apply them to our daily life, we can get a lot more out of those uh, books of the Bible. That is all great stuff from these guys. The one thing I would add to it, and it actually dovetails exactly with what Glenn is saying there, is you, it is not helpful to think of different parts of the Bible as you're going to unlock something that you didn't know already, really, as we talk about a lot. The basics are basic, and it's that way for a reason. You're not going to look into the Minor Prophets and discover some amazing, mind-blowing nugget that changes the way you look at the whole thing. But a good reason to dig into them is it adds a lot of color to the things you already know. Like the stuff that's, uh, to use a, a little bit of a clumsy analogy, but I think you'll know what I mean, stuff that is prose in like the New Testament or in the history books that you may be more familiar with in the Old Testament, that gets added with a lot of poetry and a lot of feeling and a lot of just a lot of oomph behind it in these minor prophets. You know, we've been talking about justice for the poor, and that's very plainly stated. You know, Jesus, Paul, uh, you know, the writers of Psalms just plainly say, you know, God hates it when people don't treat the poor well, and he doesn't look kindly upon that. But then you look at something like the book of Amos, where in chapter five, that like, you got to buckle in a little bit. Because, you know, if you start in uh, verse 22, he says, though you you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Do not bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your gods, the star of your god, which you have made for yourself. Again, we can look around and find some parallels, but we're not going to comment too, too much on that. But one thing I will say is the thing early in the chapter that he mentions being so righteously angry about is you impose an unfair tax on poor people so that you can have like really luxurious things. Yep. So again, you have a, a statement that if you went to Sunday school for more than a, a month, Hopefully, you know that Jesus it looks on the side of the poor and the downtrodden. You've read Matthew 25. What you're going to get if you read through these, these minor prophets is a different angle and some beautiful imagery and poetry and to put some, some different kind of bones on that, which I think is very important because, as Glenn mentions, one of the things about reading the Bible is you're never done with it. You, you know the basics. So the way you're never done with it is there's always— a new bit, a new angle, a, a, an image or an idea or some little bit that sinks into you that you never picked up before. That's a really cool thing. And if you start looking at books you've never looked before, that's the kind of really cool stuff you're going to find. We're going to move on to our next question here. It comes in anonymously and it says, my family members are making bad decisions. I know I can't control their actions, but I can't just sit and watch them hurt themselves and others. I'm just not sure what God wants me to do, if anything. And a, a very relatable question as it comes in. And Jed, where would we kick off with it? It is a great question. We're really glad that you wrote in. And we're sorry for what you're dealing with. We, we really, really are. And I think all of us can empathize uh, varying levels with what you're dealing with. So I think let's start by looking at, at kind of a bad idea that occurs to most of us in these moments, which is we want a right now solution. We want something that right now today is going to make these people act right that we can implement so that this problem is solved. That's that's what we all want. And if that's where you're at, you're not alone in wanting that because, again, I think we all want that. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had in my life that, that boiled down to someone explaining, I need you to give me the magic words that I can say that will make this other person in my life act right and stop uh, misbehaving. Yeah. And what I can tell you is if magic words exist, I don't know what they are, and I've never met anyone anywhere who knows what they are. <laughs> right. So with that in mind, practically speaking, let's say that there aren't magic words. And really what we're looking at is the difference between right now solutions 
versus long-term solutions. That's really, really the thing that we're looking at. Here's what I can tell you is the vast majority of the time, right now, solutions are not going to give you what you want. They hardly ever do that. Long-term solutions almost always have the best chance for success, but the downside is they don't pay off right now. That's why they're long-term solutions. So I have some guesses as to the kind of misbehavior that you're thinking of, but I, but I don't know. But um, let's just say that you have a family member who refuses to recycle and, uh, and you've had about enough of it. Well, a right now solution is you could go scream at them. You could, you could get in their face and you could, you could yell at them and you could berate them. And some part of you might for a very short period of time feel better because you've said your piece and you've done something and you've put it all out there. But A, I don't think you would feel better for very long. And the odds of that actually changing the other person's behavior are almost zero. I mean, it's technically possible. I, I can't promise you it wouldn't work, but man, it's really unlikely. And honestly, by the numbers, the odds are much, much higher that you just kind of damage the relationship and that they might refuse to recycle moving forward just out of spite. So <laughs> there's that. So what does that leave us with? Well, the thing that we're really, really left with in most situations is through your actions, not so much through your words, but through your actions, you setting a good example for other people to follow. That's it. That's pretty much what you've got. Using your actions to set a good example for other people to follow. And there's a few things on that. The first is, again, it's, it's not a short-term solution because it, it will do almost nothing in the short term. It will benefit your life if you're making good decisions, but it, it, it won't do much to change the behavior of others. But no matter how sullen or belligerent your family members are, they're watching your life. They, they are. They are paying attention to the decisions that you make and the things that you do. And you are, by setting a good example, you are not only showing them that a different way of living is possible, and that alone is incredible. That's a huge gift. That's a huge blessing that you make it clear to other people that there is another way to be. That's just hugely important, man. But the second thing that you're doing is you're giving them a bit of a roadmap of how to start and what it might look like if they were ever ready to make some of those better decisions in their own life. That's about as huge of a gift as you can give another human being. Whether they choose to act on it today or not is neither here nor there. Whether they choose to act on it a year from now is neither here nor there. You're giving them a great, great gift. And again, it's one that all of their sullenness and belligerence and whatnot kind of can't undo. It's, it's still there. Whenever they're done with the misbehavior and the acting out and they're ready for something new, that gift is still there. And critically, it's been, it's been benefiting you the whole time by virtue of you making good, godly decisions in your life. And that's what we want to see you do. Absolutely right. That's a fantastic place to start this off. And Glenn, I think one of the things we have to really dig in on here, as Jed's pointing to there, is starting off with for ourselves. Uh, managing our own expectations for how much influence we can have in the situation, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, certainly for us, you know, just that idea Jed's talking about there are planting seeds and, uh, you know, uh, creating uh, a, a different type of conversation around these things. That's the most that can be done. Uh, I think it's important to recognize, yes, that we don't have control over that, so we manage our expectations of that. I think it's also super important to recognize that the Holy Spirit still is active in the world, uh, and He still uh, works on people's hearts. And sometimes what you're seeing is a person who on some level knows what they're doing and saying is horribly wrong, but they are just frustrated and they are angry and they are afraid and they are caught up in all the drama of it. And you're hearing the drama. You may only be hearing one side of that. Uh, and you, you, you may be hearing someone who's trying to convince themselves of something. And if they can get you to believe it, maybe they'd believe it. 
Uh, but the harder you're working to get me on something, the more you're ranting and raving about it, the more I'm concerned that I, I don't think you believe this stuff. You know, who, who are you trying to convince kind of a thing? It's also important to recognize this, and this is the secret sauce. People have a way of personally identifying with bad decisions. That is to say, they you are commenting on and a, a choice that's being made, a political action that has happened, an economic philosophy, or you're referring to something abstract. But people who are caught up in something ugly or um, abusive or uh, based on uh, anger and those kinds of, uh, you know, sort of negative emotions, they they sort of meld their being and their personality to that thing. So, you know, I, I've seen a lot of um, uh, pod, uh, 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 political comments on Facebook, and someone will say, here's what I think about this and such and so forth. But the response is often, you, have, you are making me feel bad. You are insulting me. Now, someone said something about a political thing they're not talking about you you are not in this in in this discussion but they identify with that so much so that they they can't separate themselves from it they can't just hear it as you are talking about that thing you're talking about me you you apparently you hate me uh because of this political stance so if you know that's happening, if you know that's what you're dealing with, you have to separate those things out and say, okay, here's how I feel about you. Here's how I feel about this other situation. That's not connected to you. It doesn't change how I feel. You can buy into that, and, and that's between you and your maker. I'm not involved in that. I'm talking about a different thing altogether. And sometimes you find yourself in a position where you can't separate that out because that person is just clinging to that negative thing. They have they have they have got themselves in a cult like grip of, mm. of following that thing. And if you can't do that, then you have to recognize I have to prioritize making sure this person understands how I feel about them. It's not super important that they understand all of my thoughts about whatever they're on. Uh, I can I can say, look, I'm not on that, uh, but I love you and I respect you and I care about you and I want to have a healthy relationship with you. I really don't want to hear any more about this because that's going to make the rest of it hard to continue to respect you. But I respect you and you can think whatever you want. That's you know that's 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 on on you. Let's figure out a way to change that channel. And final thing, uh, I agree with what Jed's saying here. Uh, the, if you want to help people make changes and get into a different way of thinking and you want them to be sort of a part of your, your thinking on things, your, if you feel like you've got a much healthier uh, and more godly take on something, you have to make room for them in that world. You have to say, here's how you would fit into this. In other words, it's about saying, look, y- you have a certain... Uh, viewpoint. You have a certain attitude. You have certain passions. You know, I, I want to tell a lot of people that are caught up in politics. I wish you cared about Jesus half as much as you care about this politician. Uh, I, I wish you were um, passionate about spreading the ideas of Scripture as much as you were trying to get everybody to vote the way you want them to vote, or be afraid of what you want them to be afraid of, or any of those other things. So I think um, helping to pe- helping people to feel that they have value and that they have worth, and that there is room for them in a different world that they might be even more accepted and appreciated in a healthy culture rather than one where there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of uh, frustration and anger. Yeah. That's all excellent, excellent stuff. Lee, where do we close this out? I love what these guys are saying on this. And I want to talk just for a second about the way influence works. Um, when you are in a position to to have to set up boundaries, especially with family members or people you're close to, friends or anything like that, there's a curious thing where people will send up a test balloon to see how it affects you, to see if they can get a rise out of you, to see if they can get mm. you um, to fire back, 
Um, and a lot of times the way that you respond to that, you can demonstrate, I, I like how Glenn said, you can, you can clearly communicate to people, I love you and I respect you, but you can also clearly demonstrate, you will not get a rise out of me on this. You will not influence me. I am not movable on this. There's a curious thing about the way that influence works on people is that people will try stuff, not even knowing what their plan is after that. They're just, I'm just going to try this. And then if it doesn't work on you at all, sometimes they'll just back down. They'll just like, they'll just think, okay, well, that didn't, that didn't really work. So I don't, I don't think I'm going to keep trying that. And if you, but if you respond to that with a lot of drama and stuff like that, well, now we're hooking horns in this thing. Now we are, now we're toe to toe. Now we're in an argument. Now we're in a debate or now we're in a whatever. I had a conversation recently with a family member about a very sensitive kind of cultural subject. And this person started giving their things. And I said, I'm going to cut you off right there. And I want to let you know a couple things. One, I love you, um, but we're not going to talk about this because I want us to be friends. And this person said, well, okay. But then they started back into it and I said, hold on just a second. I just want you to know that if we're going to keep talking about this, I'm going to go. I'm going to get off the phone. Love you, but I'm not going to do this. And didn't get upset, didn't raise my voice, didn't fire back, didn't, you know, bring statistics or anything like that. And I think part of the the calculation here is the person who is able to rise above the drama of some mm. of these test balloons and not take the bait mm-hmm. and not raise my voice and not any of that stuff and just say... It's part of setting boundaries of, I am not emotional. This is not an emotional calculation. This is me giving you a factual statement of what my stance is. When we set boundaries, we have to get to the place where I don't care. I I have to get to the place where I say an inner calculation of, I don't care if I don't please you right now. This is what I will do or won't do. I have to be able to not take the bait. Some people will try a test balloon on you. They will try to get you to rise up emotionally, and you have to be able to keep the cool head. And and what's really, really interesting is sometimes when you are able to rise above the drama and keep a cool head, people will just back down. They'll just stop. Not everybody, not every time. I, I can't make like a, you know, like a, 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 a just a, a black and white promise that that's the way that's going to go. But I can tell you that a lot of times that will happen that way just because of the way influence works. Somebody wants to get that rise. They want to provoke that emotional response. They want the debate. And if you make it clear, I'm not here for that. I love you. I respect you. And we're not going to talk about that. Um, then, then a lot of times those things will just, it'll just be over right there, or the conversation will be over. But I want to encourage you to to calculate and think about what it would take for you to emotionally rise above the place where you don't have to enter into the fray of the drama so that you can set the tone of the conversation. I feel like one way or the other, the conversation will be over is a pretty good outcome either way when we think about yep. it. Yeah. Uh, oh, these guys all said a lot of great stuff. One thing that kind of the undercurrent of a lot of what was going on there, which is, is worth kind of shining light on, is people behave in these negative ways and believe kind of these things that are destructive for a whole host of reasons that are maybe not necessarily complex, but they're they're complicated. They're deep seated. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of emotional stuff going on. There's a lot of identity stuff, like Glenn was talking about. So almost something that almost has a 0% chance of working is just, I will explain to them why this is so bad. I will pull out the charts that show this is what wearing a mask does. This is what not wearing a mask does because if they just understood that would have some effect on why they're taking this, this stance. You can't argue with science, Matt. (laughs) I super can. And maybe I'm gonna, because I have YouTube and who needs science? Um, but there's the idea of this, that is this person is trying to have a rational argument and I will just give them new facts. And most of the time, that's really not what's going on. So you have to understand what the situation you're in is in order to have the chance of doing something that gives a positive outcome, which these guys gave you a lot of great ways to do. 
to move on to our final question here. It comes in anonymously and it says, I am having a hard time with quarantine. I was doing okay when it seemed like it would just be a couple of months. Now there's no finish line in sight. How do I deal with that? And again, a great and timely question. And Glenn, where do we start off with it? Well, uh, first of all, I'm right there with you. Let's let's uh, yeah. take time to acknowledge it. It's not like the people on this podcast are uh, floating in some sort of uh, beatific uh, cloud of personal uh, divine holiness and just handling it all perfectly. Uh, so, uh, we're right there with you on it and we have, uh, bad days and good days, uh, just like you do. And I think it's important for us to give ourselves permission to say, this is, uh, a, a thing we're all struggling with and trying to do the best that we can. Um, the first thing I think we ought to look at is, uh, you know, uh, th- there's the, unknown length of time of how how long we'll be dealing with quarantine, for example. Uh, but it works the same with just about any other kind of unknown length of time struggle you might have. And I think it's starting with the attitude of we can't just hold our breath and wait for something to be over. Yeah. Amen. Uh, generally, that's a bad strategy on just about anything. I mean, if if you know pretty much for sure this is, you know, if, if someone's uh, putting a filling in your tooth, it's super unpleasant. And normally, un, in just your normal everyday life, you wouldn't want anybody's hands in your mouth. But, you know, the, it, it's all uh, not as it should be, but you know it's going to be over soon. So, it's, yes, you just, you just sort of grit your teeth and, and, and ride it out. This is not that. Uh, when, when you're dealing with something that it just is an ongoing thing, you don't know how long it'll last, it's important to say, okay, I need to shift a gear here so that I can overcome the limitations that the situation is putting on me rather than letting it uh, overwhelm me. Second thing is, I th- I don't know if you're like me, but I've spent a lot of time judging myself through mm. this whole thing, mm. you know, and a lot of it is I should do more. Uh, it, it, I, I wish I could hear an amen from the audience uh, uh, <laughs> that are listening to this podcast, uh, because I think I'm not the only one that is judging myself That's uh, right. on, on things. But I think here's the thing, this is advice I give to others, I'm going to attempt to take my own advice, is don't evaluate things when you're overloaded. You're just never going to make a good and sharp evaluation if you are just tired, if you're frustrated, if you're angry, if you're afraid, whatever is overloading you, and it it might be a combination of all those things, you're not going to have a good evaluation of what's going on. You're not going to have an accurate read of what's going on. So let's not let's not try to do that. It's 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 possible to recognize I'm in a bad place. I need to get out of it. I need to reverse gears here. Uh but I, I don't need to solve the mystery of am I a good person who's living their best possible life in this moment? It's more important to say let me start digging out of this situation. Let me get a little bit of margins. Let me get ahead of the game a little bit here, get some room to breathe. Then I can start looking at some evaluation. Last thing I'll say on this is uh, we want to do more for other people. I certainly do. And I can sometimes just get overwhelmed with how much I want to be with people in person and grab them and give them a hug and all of that. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's tough for us to pour a whole lot out for other people because we are ourselves overloaded and overwhelmed on on certain days where we just feel like, man, I've I I don't have a lot of margins here. A, a lot of bandwidth is being taken up here, and if I try and help somebody and they kind of dump on me in a certain kind of way, they might end up taking me down. So I feel, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable putting myself out there. And that's okay. I don't want us to judge that either. That might be a smart evaluation of what's going on to recognize, okay, I, I, I need to know where my limitations are. But you can still do so much with finding small and simple ways to give people encouragement. Get out your, your Facebook list of the people on there 
just send them a, a note that says, I love you and I'm praying for you right now. That's, it doesn't need to be any more fancy than that. Sometimes that's the, the little thing that somebody reads and it just turns their day around. It just gives them that little pivot point and say, okay, I'm not alone in this. I have backup. It's, you know, I, I can get through this. But finding those ways of just being super mushy in a very simple and very basic, mm. uh, very easy way, uh, it, it feels like, oh, I don't know how much impact I'm going to be having given how bad things are. The opposite is the, is, is the right way to look at that. When things are that bad, everything counts. Everything helps. You don't have to be giving super sophisticated help because people can they just need all they can get right now and we know that you can do that and we've got your back on all of it it's a really really great place to start off and lee i think one of the things that glenn is giving us there which is a very i think a very common thing among people was there was a mindset that was getting us through this at the beginning that could have been (laughs) full bunker mode that could have been oh it's so nice to not have to go to the office it could have been i'm gonna have time to do projects whatever Almost all of those have run out by now. So how, where do we find a phase two on this? Yeah, I love the way you said that, the, the kind of phase one and phase two. The way that I was thinking about this was, and I love this question. I love it. And I think I, I feel on the exact same page of Glenn of just like, dude, I overstand the place that this question is coming from. Um, the way that I thought about it was, for me, I think when the quarantine hit, I was just like, all right, I'm just going into full-on survival mode. I just have to survive this for a few weeks or whatever it's going to be. You know, they, they, you know, I'm in the United States, and they said the United States is, is, is three weeks behind Italy. So I'm just going to watch Italy, and when they flatten the curve and then they're all back out on the streets, and that, then we're going to be. Um, and it's, it's going to be all good. And so I just allowed myself to just completely go into survival foot mode. There was a... There is a uh, there's a, a a restaurant that has really bad for you food, who is doing a drive through that's a couple blocks from where I work every day, and and I put their number on my speed dial literally, and I just would call and they would say yeah you know ten minutes and I'm like sweet, and I'd drive the car down there and I would get this terrible for me food every single day for literally like almost every day for lunch, and I was just like. I'm just surviving, man. And um and 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 I and there are things about that that I look back on and say that was exactly the right way to do that. It was the exact thing yeah. thing that Glenn came in on of like I do not need to judge myself right now. Nobody that's alive has ever been through this that we're doing right now. I'm just trying to make it. Right. And I got a lot of work to do, and so this is the way I'm going to do it. And then what I realized about a month and a half into that was I feel physically horrible. <laughs> I, I, th- like I feel so bad. Like the physical impact of the, of that culinary decision on the daily was wreaking an untold havoc on everything: my emotions, my sleep, my just everything. Just let your imagination run wild. I was feeling terrible, and I realized, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long time, and. I like the way Matt said it. I'm going to have to get I, I'm going to have to get a healthy balance. I'm going to have to interface two here and I'm going to have to figure out how to do quarantine that's not a survival mode coping mechanisms. And I think that's the key is I don't want to enter the the realm of like of shooting myself and judging myself, but I also want to pay attention to things my body is telling me of like we need some balance here, dude. Uh, we can't mm-hmm. we can't keep running five months on survival mode eating, and so I'm gonna have to get some balance. And so what I had to do, literally, I had a whole day where I looked myself in the mirror and said, "Okay, what are the things about my life right now that are survival mode coping, and how can I bring some balance into that without?" bringing myself into some kind of regimen that I can't keep up. The actual goal of this is I need to find something that I can keep up, something that's going to bring health and balance, something that's going to 
in a in a good way impact my sleep and my energy for the work that I have to do, something that's going to impact my attitude and my ability to, you know, to to hang out with my kids and to have good conversations late at night. I mean, my kids are staying up later than they ever have in their lives. How do I do that better? Um, all, all of these things. I had to evaluate all those things, not in a way of judging myself, but in a way of realizing this is more of a marathon than I knew it was going to be. So I can't swing all the way over to survival mode coping. Um, And I'm going to have to bring some balance without judging myself. I'm going to have to do some evaluation and bring some balance into a thing that has become a much longer term deal. And I'm going to have to make small changes uh, that bring the kind of health and balance that allow me to do the rest of my life with a lot more energy and a lot more joy. And that was a difficult day, but I can tell you that the the kind of two months since that kind of conversation with myself, it, it's not like every single day I'm doing like some crazy, you know, like Whole30 thing or something like that. I'm cooking, you know, all this crazy, you know, I'm not. I'm just tightening some things up to bring some more balance in. And it's been a very positive thing for me. All that to say, I know exactly how you feel. And those have been some difficult things for me to navigate in myself. So no judgment from me or us in any way. This is tough stuff. But what I was looking for at a certain point was I don't want to cope as if I'm in survival mode. I want to look for some balance that's going to bring me more energy, better sleep, and a better attitude. Yeah, that's all really, really excellent stuff. And Jed, I think one of the things that's going to add and we need to address with all the great stuff these guys are saying is we it's not that the finish line of this is a long way away. That would be uh, trying. It is that it is a total question mark. Yeah. So we do still have to deal with a certain amount of uh, long term sustainability, but also with some unknown. And how do we deal with both of those at once? That's a great question, and I I think it requires us to take a very intentional view of time and and how we're going to think of time, how we're going to approach time. So the first thing is to recognize this season will pass. Hmm. Uh, You are are not going to be quarantined for the rest of your life. This season really, really will pass, and and it's important that we know that and that we um, have that in our brains. However, with that in mind, we must also acknowledge we are in quarantine today, and we will almost certainly be in quarantine tomorrow. So how do we make peace with the fact that both of these things are true at the same time? And the thing that and, – and you've already heard great stuff from Lee and Glenn on this. I think the thing that I want to encourage you towards that, that goes right along with what they're saying is to be in a place where both your attitude for yourself but also the decisions that you make on that basis is as follows. I want this to be over, but I don't need it to be over. Mm. I want this situation, this this quarantine, this pandemic, I want this to be different. I want it to be finished. I want it to be over. But I don't need it to be finished or different or over. Okay. I am going as a matter of decision to live in a way where I can keep going, where I can get up tomorrow, I can deal with the day that I'm in, and I can live that in a healthy and sustainable way. And the reason that's important is when we've got something where we need it to be different and we don't know how long it's going to be the way that it is, that's where we start to get panicked. And that's where we start to make compromises with ourselves in a host of areas that we really, really don't want to be making. Here's the thing I want to encourage you on is You're a lot stronger than you think you Mm. are. You are capable of more toughness in your life than you think you are. But, and this is really, really important. This is really, really critical. You need things that are unique to you as a person in order to exercise that toughness. It is a tough thing to say, I don't know how long this will last. 
and I wish it would end tomorrow, but I don't need it to. That's a tough thing, but I know you can do that. I know that you can live that out. But now my question for you is, do you know the things that will make it sustainable for you? Do you know the things that will make it livable for you? Because those vary a lot person to person. Um, you've, this has become a cliche online, but you know, you've, you've, you've undoubtedly seen the, the tweets and the memes of, you know, some people desperately need more social interaction and other people, you know, kind of hope that the lack of social interaction lasts forever. Those are wild oversimplifications, but they do point to the fact that different people need different things. Here's the thing I want to encourage you to do is to examine with no shame and no self-consciousness, what makes these days livable for you? What makes them survivable for you? What makes them sustainable for you? Again, no shame, no self-consciousness. If we're talking about something that's actively sinful, then, then maybe we can look at that. But um, for a lot of people, you'd have to go a pretty long way before you got to that. No shame, no self-consciousness. What are the lifestyle decisions in all kinds of areas that allow me to look at the season I'm in and say, I want it to be over, but I don't need it to be over. I can deal with the day that I'm in, and I can definitely deal with tomorrow as well. That's the place that we want you to get, and we know that you've got what it takes to do that. That is absolutely right. That is all fantastic stuff from all of these guys. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com if you want to keep that anonymous. And please do join us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Chicago time at facebook.com slash thebridgechicago for our Bridge live cast. Or you can check out the archived videos on that Facebook page. We mentioned Charles Spurgeon earlier in the episode. We're going to take you out with a reading called Jesus Wept by our friend Hannah Toriyumi with a beat by a very accomplished producer, Alexander Hitchens. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Post a link to the podcast. Post a link to the podcast. Post a link (laughs) to the podcast. People will think you're cool. (laughs) It's easy, man. Nice. If you would, in all things, imitate Jesus, please note that it is not written that Jesus thundered, but that Jesus wept. Let indignation have pity mixed with it. The voice of your weeping will be heard deep down in the soul and work more wonders than thunders of denunciation. Lastly, when you have wept, imitate your Savior. Do something. If the chapter before us had finished with Jesus wept, It would have been a poor one. Suppose, after they had come to the grave, we had read, Jesus wept and went about his daily business. I should have felt small comfort in this passage. If nothing had come of it but tears, it would have been a great failing from the usual ways of our blessed Lord. Tears? What are they alone? Salt water. A cup of them would be of little worth to anybody. But, beloved, Jesus wept? And then he commanded, roll away the stone. He cried, Lazarus, come forth. When Lazarus struggled out of the tomb, Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Some of you are full of pity for the sick, but I hope we shall not end in mere sentiment. No, if you cannot raise the dead, Do something towards rolling away the stone which shuts the poor out of the hospital. If you cannot restore them to health, at least do something towards removing their maladies. Brethren, prove the truth of your sympathy.